five, four, three, two, one. Join us as we inspire the world with the Jody Inspire Show. I am doing wonderful. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, on the Jody Inspire Show. Well, I want to thank you for having me. Um, you are just a great activist and an advocate for people, and you do a lot of good for our community. And I just am more than thrilled and honored to be on your show. And I know when I first got started on the bench, you would ask me, could I do an interview? And I said yes, but COVID and everything else happened. So we finally got it done, but thank you, Jody, for your um, tremendous support in this community and just being a voice for the people. Um, I saw you last night on the news, and I was really proud of you. So yeah, just just continue to push on, my sister. Thank you, and you too. So, please introduce yourself to everyone. Everyone already knows who you are, but introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and what inspired you to become a judge. Okay, well, for all of you who don't know me, my name is Judge Monica Hawkins, and I have been a judge on the domestic relations and juvenile court for, it's going on my third year, Jody, can you believe it? Whoa! Time it's flies. been three years! Time flies when you're having fun. Wow, ain't that the truth? <laughs> yes, so um, I am one of two new judges, Judge Michelle Stroud was the second when it was elected, um, that started the bench, they, they expanded the bench from six five judges to seven because okay. of the frustration and the uptick of cases that we're um, now and our population has grown a lot. So I've been on the bench. I was a new cre newly created seat. So no other judge, I replaced them. I started my own bench and I pr wow. pretty much started from scratch. Um, I did inherit some cases from other judges, but pretty much that job I started from scratch and me and my team have kind of developed our own method and courtroom um, policy and procedure and how we handle people and we're up and running so um just to tell you a little bit about myself i am a resident of franklin county um i've okay. been here lifelong i was born um to my mother father thomas and carol hawkins um, they got married early they got divorced early so it was me and my two brothers it was raised by my mom on the south side of columbus ohio um, my mom and dad my dad still stayed very active in our lives um, i went to smith row elementary school so for all my friends out there, Smith Road for life. Okay. Southside. Yeah, Southside. South we have a lifelong friendship. And my mom still lives over there. A lot of the parents of uh, my friends still live out there. And, um, you know, we still go back for reunions. So I am Smith Road. Um, I went to Southmore uh, Junior High School because we had junior high school back then. It was 7th, 8th, and 9th. Um, again, Southside. And then they started busing. And then I went to Independence High School. So from there, I was blessed to meet people from different walks of life. I gained a lot of friendship and experiences out there. So after I graduated from Independence in 1983, I decided- I was two. You were two. <laughs> I, Come here. Uh, I went to uh, Ohio State University. It's now the, I don't know when the the came yes. on, but we used to just say, I go to Ohio State. So yeah. I went to Ohio State University where I studied criminal justice and criminology. Um, I've always had a passion for some reason, and I, and I could see all the threads coming together for justice and working in the um, criminal justice arena. 
So um, I got my I got my degree from the Ohio State University. I also had a wonderful son, Deontay yeah. Johnson Jr. Mm -hmm. While um, I was a student. Mm -hmm. uh, after I graduated from college, I started working for Franklin County Children's Services. Okay. Never heard about them. All I remember seeing when I was growing up was this sad face. And you remember the little brown face with the boy with the two eyes and no mouth? And I used to always wonder what that was. So when I started working for them, I found that there was a whole world out there of children who were abused, neglect, dependent. Um, even if it was just benign neglect and dealing with uh, a gambit of problems involving poverty, lack of education, lack of resources, racism, um, drug addiction. That was one of the proliferation of crack addiction that come into, uh, into our society. So I worked with that family, families in in harm's way and families in crisis for a little over 13 years um during that time god renewed my path to go to law school so i went to law school while i was working there and then i became an attorney and i stayed at children's services for approximately 12 years as um, their staff attorney and wow. there with abuse neglect dependent children some delinquency children some uh unruly issues and i did a lot of the termination of parental right cases where okay. you terminate parental rights and you free children up for adoption. So I pretty much covered the whole gambit. And at one point in time, I felt like I did everything I needed to do with children's services. So I started working for the public defender office, the federal okay. um, department. And I dealt with and worked in their capital habeas unit with is death row. And I was an investigator wow. there. So I kind of saw that that pathway from abuse, neglect, dependency in the juvenile court system to the adult court system. All the way up to the adults. Yeah, okay. because a lot of those kids, when I met with them and interviewed them, they had all suffered the same ailments. They Most of them were raised in the system. Most of them had contact and connections with the court system really early. A lot of them were um, illiterate because they didn't finish school. Most of them didn't even complete ninth grade. A lot of them dealt with the benign neglect um, because they had parents in crisis and parents who suffered mental health issues, um, mm -hmm. alcohol and drug addictions, um, poverty, sickness, um, and then the you know not getting the proper education and um, and the village raising the kids. So that kind of put me on the path of running for judge because I kind of saw from the cradle to the grave mm. how the court system is like the common denominator to help thwart That's off some of that and help redirect and navigate some of our our kids and our youth so they can help go on a positive path and not go down that path of destruction mm. so, okay yeah wow so like wow like so you so you so you've worked with the kids all the way up to and then you've also worked with the the adults mm -hmm. um like how how much interactions did you have like with the families? Like how like were you able to like you know reach the families? Like you know with as far as like with the kids and things like that. Um, I know that a lot of people say um, everything it starts at home. It starts at home. Mm -hmm. So even if we we kind of like. My words are like real bad today. Mm -hmm. Even if we try to change the young person before it's too late, but they have to go back to that same environment, that same toxic environment. Like how do we need to reach the, the parents 
Oh, definitely, definitely. So when I worked as a, so, a caseworker, it was a family approach and you work with the whole family and you try okay. to provide services, case management services to the family to act, uh, access them to resources to help minimize their problems and alleviate yes. problems. And you work with, um, you know, getting them in drug and alcohol treatment, getting them in mental health counseling, psychological evaluations, parenting classes, the whole thing yes. you're working with the whole family. Okay. Now, when I worked as an investigator, unfortunately, I just worked with that one person that was on death row, and we were trying to overturn the death row and get them life, mandatory life. And the sad thing about it is when I met a lot of those kids who were on death row, I could still see the child in them. It's like they hadn't grown, and whatever age they committed that offense, they had them tried as adults. They, they were still mm, that age. They still that age. Yeah, and the problem was most of them, they're not the same person. Most of them had remorse. Most of them were very contrite. It was just a barrage of things happening like a perfect storm with, that mm. led up to that incident. And, and and just to say, and I'm speaking beforehand, it takes a village to raise a child. That's yes. a whole African problem. Yes. And it, it starts at home. Um, and I'm not judging anybody. I'm just speaking for myself. As a mom, um, I was... Head, head of the household, I monitored everything my son did. I monitored mm -hmm. what he watched. I gave him structure. I made sure he was going to school. He was getting his education. I had him involved in activities. I monitored who he hung out with. He knew my house was my house. One, okay. I didn't make him the man of the house. I think a lot of times people make that mistake. They're not the man of the house. They're children. Right. And he knew that there were no door, closed doors policies. And that it was my house, and that meant I can go through any time, anything at mm -hmm. any time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was able to check the cookies on the computer and monitor everything that he did. And I watched who he hung out with. If I didn't discern that it was a good friendship, I cut it off. I okay. was a teen mom. I picked up kids, dropped them off. He didn't just get to hang out places. He didn't just get to spend a night anywhere. And I just had tight reins on him. And okay. I know he used to get so mad at me all the time because I work for children's services. They say, Mom, I'm not a children's services kid. <laughs> he didn't understand that God put parents in children's lives to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and give them the tools necessary to be successful adults. But unfortunately, we have a transgenerational problem because people have over time, due to neglect, abuse, um, substance abuse issues, criminal behavior. Mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. children, I think, now are suffering the fruits of our actions. And now children don't have the stability, the discipline, the training, the protection, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tools in place to be successful adults. And then also, um, they have access to adult things that they shouldn't have access to, mm -hmm. but their mind is not capable of understanding and grasping the severity of what they're doing. Um, our, th that's exactly why we have a juvenile court system. Um, okay. Because we have determined through research, through data, and through statistics that juveniles do not function like adults. They don't have the human capability. They don't have the psychological aptitude. They don't have the resources to cognitively understand the seriousness of the consequences. A lot of times kids think they're invincible they don't understand the finality and the eternity of death and mm -hmm. um, th mm -hmm. they're kids. So the problem is we have a lot of kids who don't 
understand the seriousness of what's happening. And the juvenile court system was established first in 1899 in Chicago, Illinois, was the first um, enactment of a juvenile court system when they gave the courts jurisdiction over abuse, neglect, dependent, and delinquent children under the age of 18. And the whole focus and goal of juvenile court system is on rehabilitation and not punishment. Okay. And stop labeling our kids as criminals and saying they're found guilty and sending them to prison and adjudicating them delinquents and trying to send a system of reform and rehabilitation to give them an opportunity to change their behavior to be productive as citizens in the United States. So is that what like the, the diversion programs that you guys have at right now, currently? Is that kind so, of what that is? That's kind of, it's cause of, so the court since the first one was established, um, by 1929, I think every state in the District of Columbia has some system of a juvenile court system. Okay. And there's a lot of precedent in the Supreme Court where they have relied on um, research and psychologists to say that kids are different. They're made up different. So, you know, it, the problem is, and I think the tension is, that we're always dealing and balancing social welfare versus social control. They're kids, they need help, and we need to provide it to them. But we also okay. want to keep the community safe. So courts, the juvenile court system has evolved a lot. And now they're trying to work at diversion as a means and a method to get the kids who are needlessly in the system because of poverty, because of race, um, can get out the system and get into programming to help them be rehabilitated and stay in a community because that does so much better for them as adults as opposed to keeping them incarcerated or in the detention center so um, can you can you like summarize the diversion like what it is because some people aren't really aren't really familiar with it so we have a court we have adopted the jdai it's the juvenile detention alternative initiative and it's an okay. initiative um, instituted by the state of ohio and what we try to do is our goal is to focus on rehabilitation and keeping our kids and trying to divert them out of that system. I mean, there's historical data that shows that a, a kid spending one night in a juvenile detention center can destroy their whole life and cause a, a ripple effect of problems that will impact them negatively for the rest of their lives. Mm. So, so as a society, we are responsible to try to keep kids as safe and as sane as possible and try to make sure they get the treatment in the direction that they can in order to be successful adults and if they do commit some kind of crime if it's appropriate to give them a, a clean slate when they're 18. so we're trying to divert people out the system to keep them in society because we know as a society people do better when they're in the community and they're participating in the community and they're being disciplined and getting um, treatment and education in the community rather than being locked up so when so when so when the judges decide not to lock the kid the young people up, where do they go to? Where do they go back home? Do they go to the Buckeye Ranch? Like where do they where do they go to once they're released? And that depends. Um, each of us judges have our own caseload, and there's a, a benign test that that and it's neutral, and it determines whether a kid, if they meet these factors, they'll be released. There's a couple places they can be released to. They can be released to their parents or a, a custodian, they can be released into the custody of Children's Services and Children's Services acts as their parents and they can place them in various places like group homes, 
uh, rehabilitation facilities, uh, residential treatment facilities, and places like George, uh, what's it called? George, I can't think of that, George Johnson. It's a facility in Illinois that's really successful. And so, or we can hold them in detention until a further hearing. So there, those are the different places. Now, none of them are ever able to sign themselves out because they are under 18 and some adult has to have some kind of uh, custody of them. Okay. So, we'll so just they just run around. They, they're supposed to go to either the parent, legal custodian, or children's services, or ch some child placing agency. Okay. So I have, um, okay. You, did you do a police ride along before? I think I seen yes. a picture of you. Okay. Yes. I think yes. that is so important for our, our, our leaders to, to do a police ride along. So you get to, so they get to see what it is like from a police officer's standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I've learned from my police officer friends, they say that when they arrest the young people, as soon as they arrest them, next thing you know they're out before the ink is dry on a report and and that's uh, i've gotten that for years from them like you know it's they say how it's frustrating and then also um a, one situation that really stood out to me which you don't have to talk directly about that one but a young man that that was arrested at least he's arrested four times like before february the middle of this year before the middle of like February, and the fifth time he he his crime, he he hit a, a older grandmother trying to steal her steal her car. Older lady, I don't know if she was a grandmother or not, but she was an older lady. He was trying to steal her car, and he assaulted her and actually hit her. It was all over the news, so I'm pretty sure you you've seen it. Um, how does cases like that happen? To where like is like is it like a a glitch in the in the the system thing that you guys are using or how did it get out and then continue getting back in more trouble? All right. So there's no glitch in the system. Honestly, it's all the components working together and every institution has their own role to play and their own responsibility and their own accountability. What here at the juvenile court system, when children come in, um, just like adults, they are presumed innocent until they're adjudicated delinquent. Just like in the adult, you're supposed to be presumed innocent until you're found guilty by your okay. of your peers. In the juvenile system, they just are found that by a judge. When they have charges, they come through our system, the judges and the magistrate do a thorough evaluation to determine what's going on. Until a child is adjudicated to be delinquent, they are presumed to be innocent. And Services are in place, systems are in place, and there are allegations, and so we have to act accordingly. Because what you don't want is us just locking up kids and just throwing a wide net and casting a wide net and just locking kids up and keeping them in there because we know what a detriment is that is to the psyche of young adults. So in situations like that, it's very unfortunate, um, but you have to let the system play out. You have to give persons their day in court. The prosecutor has to prove their case. The kids have to be adjudicated and then they have to be sentenced or committed to different services, directions of youth services or not and let home. So a lot of times people in the media and in the community get frustrated saying, why are you letting all these kids out? But mm -hmm. they only hear part of it and 
there's a whole system in place and you've got to give kids their procedural rights and their procedural due process before you can lock them up or send them away in a direct a youth facility or bind them over as an adult. There's a system that has to take place just like an adult system that, that gives people their procedural due process and everything has to play itself out. Okay. So, in terms. so what can, okay. So if you've been a judge, so mm -hmm. say a young person, a, a, a parent is having problems with their child and like they don't know I, I i get it all the time like you know how how to help the young kid that is having problems because they don't they don't want their child to meet you you know although you're right. beautiful and you're a wonderful person they don't want their you know they don't want their kid to meet you and like and they're, they're always asking like what do we what what are we supposed to do with these kids you know but uh, not just the the parents but the community is like where are the parents and how do we help these kids, especially if they're getting out, getting out? Like, we don't, we don't know what to do. <laughs> like, and, and that's a difficult, that's a kind of a tough question. It's, part of it is sad because, again, it takes a village to raise a child. And when children are not successful, we have failed them as a society because we're the gatekeepers, we're the adults, we're the authorities, we're the institutions that are supposed to help kids make it to be successful adults. And we all have to work collaboratively to make sure that systems are in place, that centers are in place, that resources are in place, that referrals are made to the proper people, that children are fed, that they're going to school. It's just, it's a lot of problems, I think, that just perpetuate this cycle. And, you know, just like the uptick in juvenile delinquency right now, I think a lot of it may be because of COVID. Unfortunately, we had a crisis, a pandemic that went on for over a year. And children have not been in school. They're not supervised. And we all know idle time is the devil's workshop. You got kids sitting at, and, and I found out from a reliable source in the education system that 10,000 kids did not ever enroll or sign up for their online school. Is that, is that for Columbus Public? Yeah. So they did never even checked in one time on their online classes. That's 10,000 kids. They have no education, has not been educated for a year. And then, you know, you think about the problem with poverty, you got to make sure they got the MacBooks. You got to make sure that they got the proper internet connection. You got to make sure they're being fed. You got to make sure they're doing their homework. You got to make sure they're paying attention and logging in. You know, there's a lot of factors into that. And we expect kids to do that, but they can't. I mean, that's why you have adults in there to make sure they have a regimented plan and they're doing what they're supposed to do. So what I can say to our community is rather to be a complainer or a source of contention or pointing the finger, do what God called you to do to help make this society better. Make the referrals, be the mentor, be the neighborhood grandmother that people like to come to to feel like they're a shelter, be the safe place for a kid, you know, be a janitor at the school and talk to the kids and, and, and identify with kids because a lot of them, they want family. Kids want discipline. That's how we're made and we need it. And a lot of times this criminal behavior or alleged criminal behavior, not criminal, I'm sorry, uh, delinquent behavior and frolicking is because they want some institution of family. Most of the gang initiations is because they want some sense of family and they want someone to care. 
And until you show them how much you care, they don't care how much you know. And a lot of times I think kids look at the system as totally against them. And we need to be solution oriented and not so much go so much as always pointing a finger and saying these bad kids, those bad kids, and try to come up with a solution as a society or we're going to be doomed because it never, it, it's never going to stop. Children are born. Children are going to grow up. All the ills of society are going to be available to them. So we have to start making programming available, resources available, community houses available, safe houses, recreation centers. You know, I remember when I was a kid, there was recreation centers. Kids had all summer long to go to recreation centers. Uh And when parents had to work, they had crafts, they had guidance, they had um, activities, they had lunches, they had games. You basically, it was like a latchkey program over the summer. You know, we had access to swimming pools. You can go swimming all summer. There was always something for us to do to keep us in there, you know, involved and engaged. Mm -hmm. And there was always somebody in our community that cared enough to reach out to kids, to talk to kids, to try to keep them on a straight and narrow. And they had a lot of respect and they didn't do anything to those people. Even now, you know, where I live at now, the kids let me, they come to me, Miss Monica, they know, you know, I'll give them candy. I said, I better not see one Tootsie Roll paper on this street. And y'all pick up your hot <laughs> cans. I don't That's right. Them. And they know they're very respectful. They're very manageable. But they know they can come here. This is a safe place. So we have to start getting back to the basics. I, I, I get back to the basics. Just being there for people. Being there for kids. Loving them unconditionally. Trying to give them the discipline and the love and the education they need. And the, and the structure that they need and help divert them away from a bad path. Like I, I was telling you earlier that, you know, as a child, um, I was I was the first to go to college in my family. I was Ohio State University. I graduated from O, o State. I was Buckeye. Yay. Yay. Um, and I, I wasn't raised around doctors and lawyers and judges and police. Well, what? Let me take that back. Cause my best friend's mom was a, she's a black police officer. So I grew up, my second mom was a police officer. So I I was around a police officer, but as far as like judges and lawyers and doctors and, you know, different people like that, um, I didn't have access to them. And I know a lot of the different things that's going on right now with these young folks is that they're, I feel like they're getting bad messages from the music, from their peers, from the internet, from, um, from different things like that, like how how can we how can we what's the word I'm looking for? Okay, I want how how do we introduce the children to things other 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 careers other than like rapping and singing and dancing and sports and how do we introduce them to different fields and things? Through exposure and connections. And that's why I told you, whatever I can do in the community to educate them, because a lot of times I was like you, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. You know, my, my family was intimidated with that system and I didn't have um, a host of role models. I mean, I, I had a wonderful gr- group of people, but when I say judges, um, attorneys, uh, doctors, that those weren't in my immediate circle. And mm-hmm. it was exposure. People need to take... A child and develop them and expose them to different avenues and different accesses and different things and just making ourselves available 
so kids can see I can be that. You know, as black people, we haven't seen that. And this is just now starting to come out where we're able to see movies that reflect us in a positive light. Yes, yes. That look like us. Um, clothes that, es that are ethnic, you know, for us. And so kids can see. Because when I grew up, I mean, every black show that I watched was negative. Even though I thought it was positive, you know, good time. You know, it's mm -hmm. empty nest. The dad was never working and family was on welfare. They lived in the projects. You know, uh, everybody always met the stereotypical, stereotypical role. And now we're starting to see cases and see shows of substance. And we're starting to see the Ava DuVernay's and see people who can produce and direct the Spike Lee's. And we're starting to see people of, that look like us of our ancestry that are doing phenomenal things. So I think the more exposure that kids have and the more they're able to touch those in those neighborhoods to say, it's not just television. We got black judges here in Franklin County that care about us. We got black doctors. You know, Dr. Roberts is a black African-American woman and she's the commissioner of the health department. Us as leaders being accessible so kids can see there's people that look like me, that talk like me, that think like me, that have achieved success or significance. Yes. And I can yes. do the same thing. It's just making ourselves. And that's what I try to do as a leader humanize myself as a judge yes. i have a role i have a role and i have respect but i want people to know the human part that i am a person i'm a human being i'm not perfect i'm here god put me on this path and this person and purpose and i really believe i'm supposed to be here but it's not for me it's for the next generation and it's for someone else to step up on my shoulder and some little black girl can say not only do I want to be a judge, I want to be a vice president. I want to be the president. That they start shooting for things to achieve and accomplish things that they we never in our wildest dreams that we thought we can be. That we can be our ancestors' wildest dreams. That Martin Luther King, Malcolm X's, the Marcus Garvey, they dreamed this stuff for us and they fought for us to be at this at the table. So just being available and being accessible and exposing kids to the positiveness of being black and having them be proud. Um, I can talk all day about this stuff, but I think a lot of the problems still stem from the effects of slavery and racism. And I know people don't like to say it. They say you talk about that all the time, but it, it, it is in every thread of my being. Yeah. As a black woman, I am always second guess. I am always questioned and I always have to prove myself. And I always have to prove that I'm just as smart, just as competent, just as capable. We don't get the, the privileges of just existing. Mm -hmm. We always have that barrier of racism that affects how people perceive us, how our perception is of ourselves and our society. You know, it, it's such a deep problem and, and it all stems to racism and poverty. Um, yeah, if you're a black girl, and you never see any positive black woman. You never think a black woman is beautiful. And all you see is long, silky hair and very, very light and, you know, small lips, small features. And all they ever tell you is that you're ugly. You're, you'll never be anything. You guys are that's Those are negative messages. And mm -hmm. that kid mm -hmm. grows up to have no self-esteem, no self-worth. And that's mm -hmm. what we're dealing with a lot of our juveniles. I mean, you're they're saying they're criminals and can't be rehabilitated but they're just masking what they see as an adult we become violent as a society uh -huh. and a lot of times 
We've told these kids, you'll amount to nothing. You'll be nothing. They don't go to school. They don't get get reaffirmed. They don't get any positive accolades. They don't get any positive messaging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They have no self-worth. They have no value of their life. So they're not going to value anybody else's life. And they have no sense of purpose. And they have hopelessness. So you have all that and then their children. And and that's going to cause a problem. When they have no value and no worth and you're hopeless, you don't take the means and method that all the rest of us will to deal with issues. You're going to resort to negative behavior. Mm-hmm. So as a society and it's black people and it's white people who are allies with us and understand that this is a struggle and this is life and this is ingrained in our society and is a part of our DNA, you know, that blacks have never been considered equal. And we have to continue to have voting rights reenacted, re-legislated. I mean, we're still waiting on it to be signed. And the Emmett Till anti-lynching law still hasn't been passed. So wow. we're still fighting to be treated like human beings. Human beings. And, and you're telling these kids, you're sending them mixed messages. And to be poor and Black, I'm sure it's got to be a horrible experience to be poor and Black and not educated and not have any hope that you're going to be able to engage in what our society believes in success, a job, a house, a car, and a family. Mm-hmm. The hierarchy of needs not even got them to that level. You, They got to have their basic needs met before we even expect them to act like responsible kids and be accountable and be respectful and be loving and be kind. We got to emulate that stuff and we got to develop them in it before they come to that point that they're hardened and you're not able to penetrate and touch them. You know, just as a judge, every one of my juveniles that come in there, I speak to them. Yeah. Uh, everyone that comes in before they come in my courtroom, I go back to that holding cell and say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Are you OK? Have you been doing what they told you to do? Even when my cases are continued a lot of times, I go and just 